Welcome to episode 19 of Some Pulp. I'm Michael Edwards, Bruce's son. This episode was recorded on October 26th, 2015, just days before my dad's sudden passing. It pains me deeply that episode 19 will mark the last of our conversations on this podcast. Of course, no number of conversations would be enough for me, and we will all miss him dearly the rest of our lives. We're planning to record another memorial episode as a family to celebrate my dad's life and his love of media, culture, and sports, and with some additional insight into what he meant to us as a family. My dad loved stories, and one of his greatest talents was his way with words. So without further ado, here is episode 19 of Some Pulp. Listening to Some Pulp on Sunrise Robot. Welcome to episode 19. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards. And I'm also here. I'm Michael Edwards. And we're in Denver. Yeah. Michael's always in Denver. Well, not always, but when he's here, he's here. Yeah. And uh, I rarely get to be in Denver, and it's always great fun. And uh, we get to do this live recording. So what you hear is what we said. Yeah, unlike the other episodes, which were using an AI to reproduce our scripted comments. <laughs> right. And so uh, what would we call this topic? It's a little elusive for me to, to get yeah. a hold of. Elusive or illusive? Both. <laughs> um, well, the topic, I, the easiest way to say is the topic is books, Um I think there's a lot of things to talk about. There's, you know, we we have this whole thing of paperbacks kind of rising in prominence. I think we have plenty to say about. There's genres that, you know, come into fashion in the mid 20th century that, you know, things that were for children or, you know, marginalized like sci-fi kind of gets mainstreamed um, and legitimized in the public's view um, in the mid 20th century. So I think that's interesting. Um, and it kind of connects to modern day where, you know, what is the future of reading? We're a very visual culture. We like pictures and video and streaming. And, you know, it's one of the advantages of books was arguably the portability. And now all media is portable. And so what does that, what does, what happens to reading? Um, and maybe there's some lessons from the 20th century. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking around the, uh, the desk where we're working from and there's, uh, pictures as well as uh, typography that draw my attention. And uh, that was the first thing I remember as a a young reader to um, take from what the cover of the book appeared to be about. And I would have to guess at that at a young age. But uh, I knew that something was going on in in a design sense that I I, I couldn't articulate, but I I really did... uh, uh, find it fascinating and, and, and want me to read more. But, uh, you know, I, I'll say, for instance, Fahrenheit 451, which has had innumerable covers, paperback covers over the years, and of course was, was published originally as a paperback by Ray Bradbury. And uh, I knew it meant something about fire. I knew, you know, what I would now call a dystopian future was, was under uh, attention in the, in the novel, uh, and also that men and women, children were becoming books. They were embodying books because uh, books were being burned, and that was the central premise. So uh, long before I ever got to read that book, uh, I knew that the cover meant something. And uh, I think there are lots of things about uh, present-day culture that is uh, the same, but many things are are changing in how they convey what a book means. Mm-hmm. Um and even if we just think about paperbacks as a format for for novels and, and other kinds of books, um, this kind of comes into being in the in the twentieth century. Um, I mean, there, there's re- the stuff was happening. I, f- I feel like I read about there were some false starts in other decades um, with paperbacks, and they really found their their stride in the in the fifties and sixties. And uh, was this something that you were conscious of? Was it like, oh, there are books that are more affordable, that are less heavy? Like, was this a marketed feature of these books? <laughs> well, 
we first moved into our own place with with some bookshelves about 1958, and uh, we started filling them up primarily with paperbacks. Uh, Mostly uh, books that my mother liked to read. They were show business biographies, and uh, you know, I I liked to. I think I would call it science fiction, um, and those were only available in paperback. That's the only thing that science fiction writers published in. Uh, and uh, you know, my dad would would purchase paperbacks about uh, how to improve at the at the racetrack, and and to <laughs> me, it's kind of a strange idea that. Uh, you know what is considered a, a a sport these days that you know gets uh, television attention and uh, and uh, predicting uh, winners and losers. Uh, my dad thought there was some sort of system, and if he read these books about the system, you know it would somehow improve his chances of winning. Unfortunately, it did not. Use this one weird trick to, to yeah. win at the racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, to, to me, uh, the books of the of the late fifties and early sixties, which were my prime coming to want to read and uh, and collect books, and so that meant uh, we weren't buying hardback books. Uh, the first hardback book I remember consciously saying, "Let's buy this book." That would have been some exorbitant price, like ten dollars, yeah. was the Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. And uh, and I only learned about that because I knew at some point. It was predicted to be a Hollywood movie, and uh, <laughs> and I, I knew That's I would want 60s. to read the book before this movie came out. So, uh, one of my favorite, uh, again, as as I've come to be uh, an adult reader, uh, a Japanese writer by the name of Shusaku Endo wrote this little story, "Fantastic Voyage," and uh, you know it was it was turned into a quote unquote Hollywood movie. And uh, uh, I, I didn't have access to, to uh, Shusaku Endo when I was 12 because I didn't know he existed. I just knew that this wonderful movie about people who are shrunk and then injected into a man's blood, uh, blood system. Inner space. <laughs> uh, well, and that, yeah, that's another ver- version of the same story. Uh, this one had Raquel Welch, wow. uh, who was the starlet of the time. And... Uh, and then, of course, all sorts of other satires of that that theme have gone on. But to me, there was a, a, a symbiotic relationship between what these science fiction writers were doing and a, a barrier that somebody like uh, Michael Crichton was able to achieve differently than Ray Bradbury, who would, who would have been considered at the time the, the dean, the, the intellectual center of American science fiction writing, uh, Michael Crichton would actually break out with a uh, a full fledged hardback book as its original publication, and of course he was a medical doctor. Uh, another favorite writer of ours, uh, you, you you and me, Michael, is Walker Percy, who got his degree, got a, a, an MD in psychiatry. Yeah. So uh, there were there were lots of uh, writers who didn't fit any kind of mold, didn't didn't get an MFA from anywhere. Yeah. There's there's a novelty Twitter account I follow called the MFA student, and he's just always saying snarky, like arrogant things about plots and stories. And um, <laughs> um, well, you, you brought up sci-fi. Maybe we could say a little more. Like, what is the the arc of sci-fi? And I realize that could be its its whole own episode, and we've touched on it with the Twilight Zone and some of our other topics. But as, as in terms of books, um, you know, the sci-fi start in magazines, amazing stories. Um, um, Definitely in its its mass availability. I mean, uh, I mean, you do have a 19th century Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, and they're writing full-length novels, and they're not distinguishing it from uh, regular romantic novels in the traditional sense, romantic being an ending that has a happy ending for two star-crossed lovers who find each other. Uh, romantic a Princess means, on Mars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, it, it eventually becomes in the 30s and in, into the 40s and 50s the, the uh, bailiwick of uh, fledgling writers who want to get published and who have great ideas. They may not be good stylists, and, uh, but you know, the, the 40s and 50s science fiction writers, and C.S. Lewis would be a testament to this because uh, 
he, he tells uh, anybody who'll listen that the greatest American science fiction writing is happening in magazines. And, uh, and what, what he likes about those, those magazines is the ideas and the, uh, this is what he liked about George McDonald. McDonald for, for Lewis was not a particularly good writer. In fact, he was too wordy and so on and so forth. <laughs> but, uh, the kernel of the idea. And so to me, I, I would compare somebody like George McDonald to Lewis to somebody like Philip K. Dick to us, who we know has movies have launched a thousand movies. Yeah. Some of them not so good. Page But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's always about memory and what, what does it mean to be human and, and you know, what is AI going to What's mean? What's real? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's the magazine and it's, uh, you know, it's at the drugstore. It's not. It's not going to be found in the library. You're not going to be able to check it out. Uh, you're going to find it in uh, the most woe-begotten places to find books. <laughs> because in the company of science fiction are these what I call lurid novels about the South. It's usually God's Little Acre, Erskine Caldwell, and it's you know it's about lasciviousness. It's about fornication, <laughs> yeah. and and yet it's maintained as as a uh, not not so much a. Uh, uh, dialogue that's deliberately raunching. I mean, it's not a lot of of uh, f words and uh, and so forth. It, it's it's told within the boundaries of what's possible to be published. Otherwise, it would be yeah. banned. So uh, so here's science fiction, noble science fiction, who's <laughs> pushing the future and so forth. Of course, of course, uh, science fiction writers always say, "Well, we're never really writing about the future. We're talking about now." And yeah, we're just using our system and so forth. Yeah. But but to me, uh, Philip K. Dick was often also writing about the future. But again, I didn't know anything about him and, until I'm in college. Yeah, seventies. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, although uh, there was the Scholastic Book Service, which you know produces all these great book clubs for junior high and and uh, high school ages, they always had a science fiction section, and uh, that's how I added to my book collection is that uh, there would be some uh, Ray Bradbury and and other writers, and uh, my books would fill up cases all over the house. So, did you have any? Favorite books? I mean, there's your favorite books in terms of the, the story or the the writing or the philosophy or the ideas are your favorite or stuck with you. But in terms of an actual object, do you have any memories of favorite books like that cover or the way they laid the type in this one or you know, <laughs> um, as a whole thing and not just the words? Um, well, I mentioned Fahrenheit 451. That, that's a stand up for many many people and. Uh, in every time a new uh, paperback came out, I, I should say a new edition of a paperback came out, because it was very easy to sell them out because they didn't do a lot of press runs, and so they, they might you know make ten thousand copies of that paperback book. And the next time it came out, which might have been within two months or six months, uh, especially located around the uh, areas of, of New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, that's that's where the hotbed for science fiction writers were. And you know it's probably spreading out over the nation, but um, they would they would create a new cover, and that's why there are so many covers. When you go to a, an old bookstore, uh, these these are are all sorts of versions. And what I liked about them uh, typically was they were attempted to be abstractions of what the novel was about, and and so. Well, for Fahrenheit 451, it's about heat, it's about fire, and so forth. But then the, the the pictures on the novels and the designs of the novels begin to change, and indicate something abstract or or some design like you know interlocking squares, and um, there, there's a sense at which if you're going to tell a story about the future, then the the novel itself cannot look conventional. It has to be yeah. odd. Need some Saul Bass involved. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or, or the first time I ever had heard of the name M.C. Escher, who's, who's famous for these interlocking, right. interlocking uh, uh, images, uh, you know, kind of a panopticon sort of, you know, you're trapped inside something else, it's trapped inside something else. Yeah. And that may not have been about what, what the story is about. It's not about a prison break or it, it's not about, you know, being trapped in Plato's uh, uh, uh cave of knowledge. Uh, it could just be an attempt to evo- evoke this. And I also saw it in books that are supposedly about media and about technology of the, of the era, and that's Marshall McLuhan, um, who you know has famous titles, but the titles have almost, almost been eclipsed uh, 
and and been reduced to a slogan that really uh, McLuhan has probably invented as something that's going to the, the joke is going to be played on the person who adopts that yeah. that motto because it isn't really all that there is going on and it's much deeper than that. Who hasn't heard the medium is the message and right? But how many really understand right. the implications of what that says? <clears throat> <coughs> there were <coughs> certain, <coughs> excuse me, certain kinds of su- subjects, and I think this is depicted um, in the uh, uh, example you you posted the other day or, or uh, sent, sent to me. Harper Perennial, Harper Torch Books. This is all from Harper, and <coughs> they had a very elaborate and very interesting sets of again these. Um, Archimedic designs, these architectonic <laughs> designs, uh, which they animated for for the, uh, the the one that you sent us, and we'll, we'll probably be posting that. Yeah, uh, and it, it's a sense that ideas are are alive and enveloping and challenging. So they're about sociology, they're about psychology. It's always concentric circles and intersecting yeah. patterns, and exactly and circles and um, <clears throat> arrows, uh, typically. And um, you, these, these are, are called trade books, but they weren't written for a they were written for a college ed- educated audience, but they weren't written as textbooks. And, and that's how a lot of people got some insight into well, what's higher education about? And and, and so it's not just the novels and the provocative. Uh, Ursula Le Guin is, an, is another science fiction fantasy writer, who's uh, the the pictures and, and designs depicted on on her novels are almost more important than the, the book she wrote. <laughs> Uh, and anyway, th- this is a, a, another way that contemporary writers of the time, fifties and sixties, are finding their way into the hearts and minds, uh, principles of discourse, principles of analysis that you know you wouldn't normally want to look for that book and and, and purchase that book, especially as a hardback. But as a paperback, you're spending two seventy five. You know that's that's as much as People Magazine costs per issue today, and and beyond. So it was a, a heady time of explosion of new ideas. Sixties being thought of as a radical era, and of course now we would look back on the sixties and say, well, that that wasn't radical. This is radical, and uh, it's it's just ballooning out the possibilities, both of publishing and what you can publish about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen some Lego designs that are much more complex than anything anybody thought in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was this New York Times article recently about um, the decline of books, and uh, one of its main tentpole points was that ebooks have failed to disrupt, or you know, if if you want a different term, carry the torch forward for reading. Um, ebooks have stagnated at twenty percent of all book sales, and maybe the entire category of books is kind of stagnating. And so, even if you're a publisher and you hate ebooks, and you're like, "Yay, ebooks didn't kill us," um, <laughs> you may it may be a pretty pyrrhic victory of if your whole category is going down. And uh, there's been some dispute with the New York Times article. Maybe traditional publishers are the thing that's dying, but published words that you sell may not be dying. But um, I thought it posed an interesting, like, what kinds of transitions might we be in? What does it, um, or even if you want to, I don't want to talk about publishers so much, but um, what is the future of reading? And, you know, what is, what is the, today's man and woman um how is their attention given to media and is reading going to be around forever or are we going to become a visual culture is that enough that I just yeah. threw at you? well first of all i think there's a little too much gleefulness about the demise of ebooks because i think that was never going to be a threat i don't think uh to doing anything but promoting more reading a different kind of reading, and as you were suggesting uh, earlier, <clears throat> pre-conversation, um, all the things you can say about you know, well, books are for reading at night, or, or books for taking on the beach, and uh, we the people used to say, well, you, you can't take an electronic book on the beach. Well, of course you can, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and you can affect the lighting, and you know, as long as you pr- protect the uh, 
the inner gizmos, you know, that don't get wet and so forth. Yeah. You know, change anything. I, I don't even want a, a book to get wet, and that's happened to me on yeah. a trip. So th- there's nothing special deterring uh, re- new readers, uh, you know, aggressive readers, people who who uh, who are at any one time reading ten or twelve books a time. Uh, uh, my wife and I in Alaska uh, are in a, a, a monthly book club. We could probably meet weekly if we wanted to. And, you know, it's like most traditional book clubs. It's just a place not really to, people don't really care what I'm reading. They just want to know what people are reading. Yeah. And and, and that's great. It's uh, it's a sort of thing that, that portends a future for reading. Uh, you know, it may invite new kinds of censorship. It might invite <laughs> new ways, you know, a, a book that is only published online or, or uh, in an e-book that uh, the writer changes his mind. He, he wants to make the ending different. Um, Does he get to cascade his ending to everyone's yeah, copy? Yeah. And, and you know, th- th- there used to be books like French Lieutenant's Woman, which deliberately wrote multiple endings into the novel, which which gave it a, a certain cachet for a time. But then people say, "I, I just soon you choose. You choose." Writer, you <laughs> yeah. choose the ending, and I'll read that ending. I don't want to invent my own ending, yeah. or you know, like our uh, interplanetary spy choose your own adventure kind of thing. That's fun, but you're not going to take a long time filling up your uh, mental reading uh, agenda with books that only allow you to choose other people's choices. Yeah, I actually want to hear from somebody else. Otherwise, it's cacophonous, and it's you know we're we're in a you're just looking in a mirror. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, so that's one thing. I, I don't think there's there's a threat, um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know all the economics of, of uh, bookmaking now for the publishers. Uh, it doesn't seem to me it costs any more to make a hardback than it does a paperback because the bindings are so good, uh, the the endurance of books, the, the longevity of books. So it's not going to be one of technology. Uh, I think it's the forces of are there going to be Amazon type uh, marketing, uh, you know, superiority, or is there going to be the neighborhood bookstore? Um, and what's going to fill the libraries of the future? Those will the, there be libraries yeah. in the future? I mean, th- that's one area where digital has been nothing but kind of awful. Is it's more of a license rental model than a libraries own a copy and get you know they have. Constant. I don't know if it's constitutional, but they have right of first sale protection to lend these books indefinitely because they're theirs. Um, they don't own the copyright of the content, but they own this copy of the book. And with eBooks, it's like you licensed our library, and we want you to pay fees every month, and it is just kind of a whole mess. But that that can work itself out or or change as, as it needs to. But um, no, I just I think I feel like the the conversation these days is um, about how people communicate ideas and receive them and think about them, and is our books going to have primacy there? Um, it's still a writing is still maybe the only or best way to communicate deep, complex things that take time to explain and put forth. Like no one's going to watch a fifty hour video of someone talking. You know, if if you're putting out a new psychological theory with all the, you know, or whatever, a new philosophy, I still think writing's going to be where you go to produce your your expression. But I, the the conversation seems to be about people's attention. Do people hook into re- reading the way they used to? Um, these millennials, I don't know. I, I joked about that last time, but. You know, are are we a tweet and BuzzFeed culture, or is, is that overblown? Are people always going to be deep readers? Well, ask this question: If they weren't tweeting and weren't, uh, what's some other abridged form of communication? You know, not texting, e- not, not email. Yeah, texting. Um, if they weren't doing that, what would they be doing? And and you know, I tend to think that the the real losses are in um, promoting. Favorite ideas, favorite politicians, favorite singers, is because uh, the the more they are truncated, um, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, send you um, 
10,000 words of a novel I'd like you to read. I, I just send you a picture of the cover, or I say, this is the guy who made that movie, or, and everything is sort of pointing somewhere else. And what we want to do is locate where is that thing where things stop and you do investigate thoroughly or as reasonably thoroughly as you can. I, I think the problem comes when the tweet is all. I just, I hear that snarky remark, or I hear that recommendation, uh, or I see that score. I mean, yeah. you know, to, you know uh, let me take the score of something for, for example. Uh, to me, that's just the beginning for somebody like like me. I mean, if it's a, a sport I care about, I, I see that baseball score thirteen to two. Wow, wonder what went on there. I, you yeah. know, I'm not going to be satisfied with this a score. But then take the It'd score. Be like a, a movie review saying, "Well, it's four or five stars," and you're like, yeah. "I." It tells me zero. Like I really don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you don't know, and if you care at all, which which I would. I mean, even if it's a team I don't care about, thirteen to two is a score that's remarkable. It's interesting. Yeah. It's you know, I did the pitcher leave that guy in that long with a you know five home runs. That you know, for a baseball fan, uh, baseball lover. To me, that evokes all sorts of narratives and tales and exploits and things. Um, obviously, you can't pause and, and you know, there are about 15 different scores. If every score is such an intrigue that it takes up the rest of my day track, that's not likely. I mean, yeah. you could become obsessed. But to me, it's an illustration of other kinds of texts that are maybe more substantial, more important. Uh, actually, I can't imagine what they would be, <laughs> but let's say they are. Uh, you, you, if you end up studying uh, people's patterns, I, I think it still ends up being kind of a zero sum. I mean, I don't, I don't think tweeting is taking anything away from anybody. Uh, it may be increasing a certain amount of, uh, uh, I don't even know what word I want. So it may be taking away human kindness. It, it may, it may be divorcing us from more uh, charitable treatments because to me once once an identity is established in a public forum particularly a, a tweet uh, it, it seems really hard to 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 get somebody uh, dislodged from that identity and it, it doesn't have to be some celebrity it could just be the, your neighbors or the guys at school or your fellow teachers and uh, to me that's the the lasting effect of new kinds of medium media uh, have on uh, human identity more than they are about ideas, whereas I would prefer that people use them to explore ideas. And, you know, I, I, I would say I've had a, a reasonably good record of using tweets to actually further discussion rather than eliminate it yeah. or end it. But don't you feel like you always reach that point a couple tweets in where you're like, this is the wrong tool for this investigation? Oh, sure. Yeah, and you're like... I can't even form an initial short response to this because I've already run out. And um and I I like Twitter. I don't know I can't really explain why cuz and we don't have to turn this into a Twitter right. episode, but um I think its strength, it's the the biggest thing you could defend Twitter for is if brevity is the soul of wit, then Twitter is amazing for comedy. It's amazing for for wit because you're you're constrained and that constraint leads to creativity and that's you know increasingly the majority of things i find on twitter are jokes and not so much someone puking links at me i i don't need i already have ways to find things i want to read or watch or look at online and people that just go read this read this read this read this um that tires me out um Hashtags, no, get out of my face. Um. <laughs> well, uh, to, to me, they're means of pointing people off stage. Meet me off stage to discuss yeah. this further, uh, and I think that's that's its true value. And I use it as much as anybody to uh, to make quick, subtle put downs, or or basically <laughs> saying this isn't really worth your time. Just read my, my wittier comment about this, and then we can go on with something really useful yeah. and important. And, that, and so that's okay. A dismissive medium. Yeah. yeah. And, and most people, I mean, I, I don't even know what most people means because I've seen some pretty low-down people operating on, on Twitter, even people who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be Democrats. I mean, whatever their identity is, like, why do you want other people to come away from that thinking that's what Christians think or that's what Democrats think or that's what Republicans, you know, whatever the identity is, that's what you want um, 
uh, air traffic controllers to think. What, you know, <laughs> All what, those air traffic happening? controller jerks but, but on Twitter. But I think something like that does happen, does happen with the, the literary phenomenon. And uh, I, I think you can read it more uh, in people like Walker Percy, like, uh, again, I, I, I sound like I'm trapped in the 60s, although I didn't read them in the 60s, Flannery O'Connor. Um, but um, because in their letters and in their exchanges with, with other fellow writers uh, and in their infrequent but uh, important uh, conference presentations where they're actually getting the, – you know, they're among the first people who actually interact with, with their readers. They're not a bunch of intellectuals gathered, although they are quite intellectual. Um, and, and there's give and take, and, and, and Percy was great at that. I mean, there, there are dozens of volumes of, of interviews and, and, and presentations where Lewis, uh, not Lewis, <laughs> Percy, Lewis, Percy uh, interacts with, with his culture in, in kind of an at-large sense, um, and, uh, you know, wh- whether it, it becomes part of Lost in the Cosmos or, or some, some of his other... Uh, or the interview know, where he interviewed himself. yeah. <laughs> Interviewed himself, and even even some of his uh, his stories um, start as uh, an investigation of an individual like Helen Keller and other other personages that represent something more than 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 they would appear in 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 human history. And and I think there's a lot of that going on in the '60s in terms of fiction and nonfiction. Uh, Truman Capote, a, a great Southern writer, who uh, is probably I, I identify with uh, being on the Tonight Show more than he ever was with being a great Southern literature writer. But he wrote a, a novel called In Cold Blood, which is a, a horrific treatment of two stone cold killers in Kansas, and it, it probably shocked and revolutionized uh, nonfiction writing. But it also opened up the, the gates for things like Rosemary's Baby and 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 and, and kind of murder. Investigation and murder stories that that are, are really blood curdling, and and fiction was allowed to become that by somebody like Truman Capote. So what, what's the point? The point of that to me is uh, there there is a way that fiction and nonfiction, but particularly fiction creates nonfiction, uh, and and nonfiction helps inform. A discussion about the horrific events as well as the glorious events, and uh, much of that is made possible through long form paperback, long form magazines, and uh, you know that's pretty much all dying up the the magazine trade because the, we mentioned that uh, a copy of People magazine is now like three dollars two seventy five, um, and as those prices go up. Uh, it, it makes the cost of reading somewhat dependent upon who's providing the text. So am I getting it all through the Internet, which is it's more or less been free, but now it's starting to not be free. Um, and uh, Somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody's <laughs> got to pay for it. And uh, if they pay for it, how much they want to pay for and is that What's pushing... What's the currency you're spending? <laughs> you know, is that going to push people then to more visual arts. And so I want to know something about the upper Midwest, so I'll watch Fargo. And they will tell me the truth about it because, you know, for It's a whatever true reason, story, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're far afield from, but I still remember the paperback book covers I saw and the discussions that paperbacks were able to generate in culture at large, that the heart, the traditional hoary you know, hardback book could only penetrate a hundred thousand people, and then that then everything else would be third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh place away from the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think the I, I'm just wondering what we'll figure out or discover in the next decades about how 20th century reading was shaped in certain ways and how we're shaped now. Like, I don't think I read less than I did in the 90s when I first started reading. Um, But I read differently. I read mostly online, mostly articles, um, not so much long-form books. I'm trying to carve out intentionally 
time for deeper reading, whether it's electronic or not. I'm, I'm not really a differentiator there. I have books on my iPad, but I have physical books still too. And I don't really consider them a very different experience. And maybe that's why ebooks are so unremarkable. Um, they're not the great evil threat to reading. They're not the great savior of it either. They're just kind of the same thing. Um, but, you know, how is your attention carved up? How, how deeply can you go? Um, I, I would even venture to say I don't think people at large are reading less. And they may even be reading more, but what are they reading? And what do those forms of reading make possible? What do they prevent? Um, and I don't know which will be better. I feel like this is the thing where you're in your own age and you just have no idea what the assumptions that they just seem so evident, but later you'll see, no, that was just the weird shape of where you were living at the time. Yeah, so you know, somebody who's who's written about that uh, pretty successfully, someone like uh, Chuck Klosterman. I don't know if you've read mm-hmm. any of his work, but uh, he's written a series of books I never paid any attention to until he started writing about sports. Then, then, <laughs> then I knew he was worth reading. But uh, you know, you know, the traditional. Uh, categories of you know sex drugs and rock and roll and so but he writes about music and developments of music he's somebody who actually lived in akron ohio for a while toledo ohio and and then spent a large portion of his young adulthood uh in uh, north dakota you know none of these places are are uh, centers of cultural change and so forth but he gives a good vocabulary and that's the main point is he gives us a good vocabulary for talking about these changes in literacy and in uh trying to discern what is happening in the larger culture. And again, it, it sounds absurd for you to try to start that project from North Dakota. <laughs> but he's been successful because he obviously does navigate to New York and Los Angeles and so forth, and he gets around. But uh, he, he, his, his way of doing it, just as an example, is he picks a fight with some rock group that he claims he's always hated. <laughs> and then by the end of the article, you find out he's, he's explained to you why... In fact, he's always loved them, but but didn't want to, and and so you too is it's is basically the case. hero's journey, the reluctance yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. So to me, that's an example of how do you get at what is happening in culture? What, how how do you explain why this phenomenon in music? Uh, I, we happened to hear part of a Dimitri Martin comedy routine last night, in which he basically deconstructed a rap song by embedding it in another song that some other performer is performing and then basically kind of mocks it. But but uh, I have to admit, it, it was actually a very eloquent analysis of th- something that if, if traded in for some other version, some other genre of that song, you'd think, Wait a minute! I don't. I don't like the way he treats women, or you know, and 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 yet probably a lot of country music songs are just like that in yeah, terms just of the, have the embedded. Yeah, it's it's these embedded of embedded genres within genres. Oh, it's like the the, the joke that uh, uh, one of the commercials of uh, the uh, Geico, uh, Kenny Rogers is singing the end of the Gambler. You, know, you yeah. got to know when to, you know. Probably all of us have thought, I've heard that song enough. I mean, <laughs> come on, it doesn't mean anything. And that's what happens. You know, it literalizes, yeah, he's, it realizes. He's willing to mock himself yeah. as being excessive and irritating and verbose. <laughs> so what, what is that time? Well, we were talking about uh, Twitter and... We Attention. Throw, and, throw, yeah, yeah. And, and what we want is a, ch- uh, a, a Chuck Klosterman who extracts us from the, the endless cycle of snarkiness and... Oh, nobody likes that song, or nobody likes that idea, or nobody likes that book. And then he sees his, his way through to the end saying, you're just as captive of it, you're just as captive of it as, uh, as anybody. Mm-hmm. Going with the, you know, the classic doom and gloom, I don't know how many times books have been pronounced dying or dead in the past 50 years, or you know, radio or TV was going to kill it, or you know, I don't know if that was sensationalized. Um, but certainly it's sensationalized now. Um, but one of the phenomenons that goes on is, you know, is collecting physical books becoming like a fetishized object? Are we turning books into posters and figurines that we frame and mount on our walls but never actually engage with as a, a, a discourse, as, a, as a, a way of engaging with ideas and, and culture? 
No, I think that's definitely what what's going on, and uh, you know, it does so even in a in a more uh, elite circle of like people who love C.S. Lewis, in which they have seventeen copies of Screw Tape Letters. They probably haven't read read any of them recently, and maybe ever. Uh, and now that most of Lewis's works are available on uh, a disc or you know some uh, internet internet enclave, um, I don't ever have to read. I can just reduce him to the favorite sentences that I have, or maybe even yeah. just words I know he used. Yeah, the, the quotes page on Goodreads. I just want to see the, the greatest yeah, hits. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the death. That's Roland Barthes talked about the death of, a, of the author. Yeah. To me, that, that truly is a, a really painful death of an author being reduced to one's sentences and then phrases and then... Uh, he, Eventually, the he, grunts of C.S. Lewis. Hear, hearing him referred to as somebody who once said or thought that, and then it's in somebody else's words. And you know that, that's one of my, my, my prime issues. And I'm, I'm assuming that's happened with everybody that, that uh, has counted anybody. F. Scott Fitzgerald has happened to... Uh, Annie Dillard. Well, even Kierkegaard, who's rarely studied or read at all, he wasn't translated until the 50s, I think, into English. You know, the life is lived forwards, understood backwards. Like, that quote is everywhere, and I don't think people really get. Right. And I had to investigate it. That, you know, one, one, I spent a week just trying to track it down and finally found out he would never have said anything quite that crisp and. Easily yeah. graspable and, and easily printed on a coffee mug. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it turns out he did say sort of something like that, uh, but uh, not in those words, and not for the purpose probably to make it easier. I mean, I, I've even got him in my Brian Wilson book as a as a, a epigraph because. I want to say something profound about Brian Wilson that, <laughs> that, that's not possible unless I let Kierkegaard say it. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it may be that book sales are at an all-time high. For all I know, I mean, The, the Martian has sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, originally, just you know, published on the internet, uh, and uh, it just may be people that are, in fact, not reading as much because why do they need to read? They've got the book. Yeah, and, and they've got it, the Wikipedia article. You know, an old, terrible joke I used to hear. Oh, you're a college professor. Have you read all those books? You know, they used to point to the the. I didn't have all that many books out in front. Where I mean, maybe maybe a thousand, mm-hmm. but I probably had five thousand buried underneath in the basement somewhere. <laughs> um, I could say honestly, I, I've read that. But if you mean, do I read them daily? Exactly those books all the time. No, I'm probably reading new books all the time. Yeah, and it, it's it, it's like I wouldn't read for a long time. Uh, you know, yesterday's baseball scores. I mean, I you know I, I might research them someday, but I want today's baseball scores. And if you tell me baseball season is over, I'm not happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was just also thinking of this hitting me with video games, where like. Um, People buy video games and barely play them, and then buy the next one. And same with books. Like I had to like start like no, finish the ones you have, and then you've earned the right to find a new one. And you know, with games, you know, beat the games you have before you buy a new one. Um, with books, read them. Um, and it's slow going because there's always something new on the horizon that's like shiny and like no, check this out. And um, I don't know. It's really like. I, I found a McLuhan quote, so we can reduce him to a sentence about, he was saying, for tribal man, space was the uncontrollable mystery, and for technological man, time is the uncontrollable mystery. And um, is that the, the, you know, the most precious currency we have is how you spend your time? And so that's what I reflect on where like, oh, I love jokes on Twitter, but I don't think 100% of my engagement with ideas and culture should be tweet jokes and so it, it is a kind of like junk food and there's a sense of like i need to make space for other kinds of discourse than just snarky jokes even though you know i i don't think of comedy as a lower form of literature i think it has as much to say in satire and um revealing absurdities and you know it can say just as much as a lot of straight earnest prose can but you know, you want you want to have a balanced diet, I guess. Well, you know, um, Aristotle, uh, moderation is the is the way to uh, even in moderation. Uh, even but uh, 
I, I think we end up exhausting some of the things that we want to hold on to as long as possible. And, and yet what we've done is we, we've created prunes, <laughs> not a Dimitri Martin image. <laughs> Uh, out, out of the we things squeezed we, everything out. We, we everything created out. prune juice, <laughs> and and I, I noticed a phenomenon I have about reading that may or may not be worth worth pointing out, but I'm going to anyway, and you can edit it later if you think it's uninteresting. Um, I've almost finished hundreds of books, meaning I've I may have even gotten to the last two chapters, uh, and sometimes this is reading I've, I've done for an assignment more than. Yeah, I, I became famous at a certain point in my own mind for being able to review books I haven't written. I mean, many people <laughs> would would say that, you know, they would say it in a kind of a private confessional, like, I didn't I actually read it. Yeah. But I did have a pretty good knack of discerning what was going to go on uh, in, a, in a book, even if I didn't finish it. Uh, and I, I most invariably was... You start was, a Jackie Chan movie, you know the beats it's going to hit right. by the end of it. And it's not that I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not proud of that particular phenomenon, but I am proud of the ability to predict what's going to happen so I don't have to read it, which is, is another way of saying not all books are worthy to be read to completion because what you've gotten out of it is probably as important as the duration yeah. of the experience, and uh, and some, you know, maybe the first chapter is is yeah. pretty much what's going to happen. You don't. I mean, how many movies on Netflix do you stop because you know you're not going to enjoy this film that it's already egregiously done something that is you know there's no way this is going to be a good movie. But, but it, it, I made it 20 minutes minutes into Sense Eight. The Netflix series about yeah. people with telepathy, and I, I was done. I was just like, "No, I can't do this." Sorry, Wachowskis, yeah. I can't do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some authors would say the same thing. In fact, they have. I mean, people like uh, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes or or uh, other you know, very important nineteenth-century writers would. would Confessedly say, ah, it's not. It's not worth finishing it to the end. I I finish it because that's what's obligated of a writer. But <laughs> but uh, if you think it's over chapter four, that's fine. Stop there. Uh, but uh, I always enjoyed, enjoyed Walker Percy's way of like in in. Uh, I think it's Lost in the Cosmos. He has a middle section of the book that's all right. The the jokey self help book stuff's paused right now, and I'm gonna try to present my idea um, that's behind this book and. The second you are bored or think it's dumb, please move on. Just skip it. And just it's fun when authors are like very self-effacing in that way. Yeah. And um, only writers like Percy can get away with that, even though I'm, they've had a, a book editor somewhere on, on the way. And it doesn't come off as self Like He's actually confident in his ideas, even though he's giving you license to skip them. He is. Yeah, but uh, I don't. I don't think we can uh, avoid the problem all of us have of authors that we love. We may really love them, or we may like them, and, and <laughs> at a certain point, you realize, you know what? I've only just liked this author all my life, and I've I've convinced myself I've I've loved this author, and it's because that's what's expected of me as a reader. Yeah, I'm supposed to love this. And, I'm supposed uh, to love the Godfather. I'm a man, or you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even though we all know that many, if not most, authors write the same book over and over again, uh, and for some of us, that's okay. Beach uh, House records the same album yeah. every few years. Uh, and uh, see, I, I wouldn't say this is true of Brian Wilson, but I, I would say that it, it's possible to think of the Beach Boys as a whole. And, and, and maybe Mike Love as as recording the same album basically for about twenty years while Brian was, you know, elsewhere, and there was there was no innovation. It was just like we, Kokomo. You know. there, there's just certain songs, certain experiences that the rep, repetitive na- nature of it ruins it. But we didn't know it until twenty years later. Yeah. So, 
things that f- seem fresh and amazing that actually grow stale very quickly. Or yeah, there, there are more internet articles I've found of people who who say, "Don't accuse me of liking everything by Brian Wilson or everything by Beach Boys just because," and then they all cite different songs. Yeah, and uh, so it, it, it's it's difficult and uh, to to maintain your allegiance to a writer or an idea or a way of arriving at the ideas. Like I, I probably don't, you know, 10 years from now, you'll ask me if I've read the latest Chuck Klosterman book. I, I probably won't <laughs> because I will have gotten the vibe out of, I know what he's doing and I think maybe I can do that. Yeah. And and I, I, I needed that nudge, but I don't need him every well, and does this happen with film months. directors? Like, there are the few filmmakers where every time they're coming out with something, you're like, I will stop everything. I will buy tickets. I will go and see what X is up to. But most of them, even the great directors, even, you know, P.T. Anderson or, um, I'm trying to think of who else I would list your Scorsese or Spielberg, you're kind of like, well, I mean, they're they're great, like unquestionably some of the best directors in the past, you know, fifty years. But do you get excited every single time Scorsese puts something out, or or even most of the time he puts something out? Uh, to, to me, I'm waiting on uh, silence, yeah. and then, then he can retire. But you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to see any more gangs in New York. I don't want to see any more. Um, Treading on the the Godfather legacies, whoever you know, whoever is doing it, and yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think you're. I think you're right, and and for, you know, I can't imagine now. Does Wes Anderson make the same movie every time? Different locales <laughs> and different different generational positioning, uh, but it's basically still the same story as, as Luke and and. Because uh, I feel like that's an that's exactly an example of what you're saying about like. People are discovering they don't love Wes Anderson; they like him. And there, I mean, there are definitely people that still love him, but you know, it's like uh, I think I've had enough of this ribbon candy that you keep putting out. <laughs> you begin to to look for different things. You'll keep seeing the movies, but I wonder what his soundtrack's going to be like this time. <laughs> or you know, it, or I want to see what that actor is like in his storybook. It's right. the same storybook, but now Ralph Fiennes is in it, and let's see what he did. Yeah, and. With the Cohen brothers, we we want to see what these selection of actors are, are going to be like. We're, we're far afield now, so yeah. I'll just say I can't imagine excited about another Steve Jobs movie. I think I've seen oh, a very good one that may or not have been you know biographically accurate, but I get the sense that this is the person. I or I, I I'm not that I'm I'm uh, you know blindfolded. Yeah, but there's enough to dislike, there's enough to rave about, and there's enough to feel sad about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could exchange the different parts of it, but, you know, pretty much, if um, it's going to be any good, it's going to be like this one. Danny Boyle has, you yeah. know, captured. Yeah, and, like, whether or not Steve Jobs was the kind of guy that would ever say, I'm poorly made, you know, in that story, was it a, a great moment? I think it was. Um, yeah, it, it was an affecting line. And I hope it's something like he thought to himself, I mean, if he didn't say it. Yeah. Um, well, by all accounts, he softened up dramatically later in life and not so much in his insane focus on products, but maybe that's why that line was so powerful because he did care about being well-made. Um, yeah. We are even more far afield. Um, let me see if there's any other dramatic questions about books I would ask. Um Oh, we asked about books as decorations. Medium is the message. Um, I, I would say something about libraries, city libraries, big libraries. I mean, the, we're in a, we're in a, a small town in Alaska, Willow, Alaska. They have a delightful, if crowded, library, uh, and it it has uh, a, a attention spans for sale. And uh, a majority of people come in to read about their own lives. They want to read about other Alaskan. Adventurers and so forth, um, and that's one kind of library. Uh, I grew up in Akron, and the Akron City Library. I didn't realize it as much at the time as I would now. Was a, a kind of a magical place, you know. I think by the by the time they renovated it, the last time I knew about it, there were like nine floors, 
and rebuilt or, or moved to a larger space. And uh, I didn't realize as a sixth grader, you know, where we all had a, a book day, we were all, we all going to go as a class down to the library um, and, you know, you know, go get a book, kids, and you know, <laughs> study something that you want to know about. Uh, I didn't realize how much was was it's like uh, there's a dragon in front of this uh, gold lair. And if you could just get past that dragon, you could see unbountiful riches of knowledge <laughs> and things. I, I didn't know who to put in the role of the dragon. Usually it would be the librarian up front because in, invariably I would get to a place where I was told, uh, you, you don't need to be there. That. That, you know, that, that's, that's not the wrong book. Yeah, it's the wrong book. It's the wrong area, and it's not that there was anything really weird or salacious because it was the Akron Public Library, and they're not going to have they're not going to uh, have Playboy or something. <laughs> they're they're not, and um, and yet, in some ways, it was comforting. Like, oh, there's somebody watching out for me, and then it was, why are they watching out for me? I I can handle yeah. human knowledge, you know, but in fact, uh, maybe I couldn't. Meaning, I needed to grow a little bit, and and so there was some satisfaction. In that so the difference is between a library that's mainly about itself. It's like this is where Alaskans come to find out about Alaska, whereas this library is for finding about about everything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, I hope there continue to be libraries, and I hope they're not out. You know, don't go get put out of business by the, the cost of lighting or the, you know, even if they have to turn the lights on once a month in a, in a free-for-all, go find the books you want to find. Uh, well, it just seems like the solution is the internet. We just need to make sure our society and our culture values free exchange of ideas and information more than it values the business models of publishers. Um, I, I really love the Wikipedia um, it's not a library in any sense, but um, as a, a model for you can create something like this that isn't a capitalistic business model. Like, you know, I don't know how big the encyclopedia business was with Britannica or Grolier or whoever else mm-hmm. was making encyclopedias, um, but that whole business model is evaporated because who's going to pay for a 20-volume set of facts um, there's no reason that can't be, you know, turned into a public service. It's better for our culture to have the Wikipedia than to try to build a billion dollar business on top of it. Like who, why do we need that wealth creation? <laughs> Does everything have to be, you know, I sound like, am I a socialist now? But no, but like there are, there are, dis- I mean, I feel like a, a American culture has some of this in our um, founding in DNA that it's like there are some things that are good f- for the society that it's okay to have in this form and I think Wikipedia is kind of like that um, where it's like yeah we're going to try to create large swaths of opportunity for business to innovate and patents and, and there's there's all sorts of messes involved but you know are we going to have a corner for ideas and discourse that is promoted because it's good for us and not just something that can be monetized. Yeah. I, I, uh, I know that uh, the uh, article I read recently that I, that I share with you about uh, what is the future value of libraries and whether it's sustainable or not, um, I, I hate the, the word sustainable if it's, you know, it sounds like it's. Uh, Going out of existence by by some sort of natural From pollution, or yeah. <laughs> but it's just like you want to stop it. Don't don't keep going. Don't you know keep uh, putting the the library in the the local borough uh, fund. You know the, the the things you 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 choose and vote for and so forth. But um, I, in some ways, I, I read this article that. Uh, uh, there have been libraries as small as as eight volumes that were preserved and secretly hid over uh, over the night in a in Auschwitz for children, and uh, whatever those eight books were, they were the most precious books yeah. imaginable. And uh, you know, there 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 may not be more than eight, but there may be eight million. And uh, you know, who whoever uh, leads the charge, you know, they're 
they're important and they're important to us, even if they don't necessarily uphold what we think society should be built upon. It's the idea that there's somebody who thinks something ought to be built on something. And, and so in conservative in the best sense of the word is make sure we don't lose any of the capacity to think our way out of this or think our way into this. And, and, uh, and of course, that's the, the whole point of Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Which isn't even a book you are super fond of, are you? Do you like uh, the cover better than the book? No, no. the The book was fine. It was the, it was the the poor movie made out of it. The Truffaut yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, I didn't see the Truffaut one. Oh. So this was. Uh, I will. We'll have to look it up later. Yeah. But but uh, it's uh, it's a worthy idea, even if the movie and the book are no no good. <laughs> <laughs> There's something in it that's better than its form. I don't know. Um, well, maybe maybe we have an episode there. <laughs> Probably so. And then we'll look, afor- look forward. <laughs> look forward to number twenty, which will be a gala event sometime in November. Yeah. So thank you for listening to Some Pulp episode nineteen with uh, your your generous host Bruce Edwards and uh, me co-hosting as usual. Um, if you'd like to check out links to the New York Times article, the, the library's article, maybe this Vimeo video we talked about of animated book covers from the mid-20th century, um, and probably some links to some other book covers we talked about, um, head to sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp slash 19. 